Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Sarah Isles Johnston, author of the book Gods and Mortals, Ancient Greek Myths for the Modern Reader. Sarah, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I am a professor of religion and also a professor of classics at The Ohio State University. I've spent the last, ah, gosh, 35 years here at Ohio State teaching classes on religion and on myth, and particularly on Greek mythology. That is my absolute favorite thing to teach. At Ohio State, we have an absolutely enormous myth class, 720 students enrolled at one time. So it um, it's really quite a trip to do that. <laughs> uh, that passion for your subject really comes through in your book. What led you to write a book about ancient Greek myths, and one in particular that is geared towards uh, making them accessible to the modern reader? It really was teaching that big myth class. Uh, I don't teach it every year, but I've taught it many, many times over the last 35 years. And it slowly occurred to me that as wonderful as the myths were, the students nonetheless were um, losing their focus. I would hear a lot of noise in the auditorium starting you know, 10 minutes into the lecture, which told me that they weren't paying attention. So I started experimenting with different ways of, of doing this. And one that I tried that stuck is that at the beginning of every class, I walk in from the wings wearing a cloak, more or less like what an ancient storyteller would wear. And I stand front and center on the stage with the spotlight on me. I have a teaching assistant who does things like run the spotlight. And I start telling a myth. And it takes me about eight minutes to tell the myth. Then I take the cape off and become normal Professor Johnston and discuss the myth. And this has worked so much better. The students are paying much more attention throughout the class. And I think it's because I'm front loading the fact that myths are stories before anything else that we want to do as far as analyzing them, explaining them, they're stories. And if you miss that, you're not going to get anywhere. The stories themselves are also not just stories about far off beings and far off places you the way you present them they they it, i found them just to be uh so accessible that they're it, that they're relatable in a way that 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 makes them and and you know the word that 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 uh i i you know you've used as well is is, is gossipy and it, it makes it so much fun to read them because we're reading about these very flawed individuals who are are, are so accessible and i know that gets to kind of the, the idea of 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 the greek gods and 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 the myths but it, I, I find the way you, you've uh made them accessible you know kind of highlights that in a way that makes it so much uh so very entertaining well i'm glad you like that it was actually something that i really enjoyed about writing the book even though I've I've published books and articles on myths for, um, well, 35 years, and therefore I thought I knew Greek myths, when I sat down to write the book that we're talking about now, I did some research because I wanted to make sure that I hadn't forgotten something or that something hadn't drifted into, you know, incorrectness in my mind over the years. And I found all these little uh, details of the myths that I actually hadn't known myself. For example, there's a version of the myth of Heracles and the Nemean lion, according to which 
when Heracles is wrestling with the lion, the lion manages to bite off uh, half of Heracles' little finger. And Heracles has to suffer that pain even after he has conquered the lion. And I put that into my book because I just thought, wow, that's really cool. That's a, a very human touch to that story. I was thinking about the, uh, you know, how you've done that with in terms of opening up and highlighting things that I, I, I mean, some, many of these stories are, are very familiar. Yeah, we, we've seen them, uh, you know, f uh, presented in movies. We've seen them uh, adapted in various ways. So a lot of what you describe in there, you know, might be familiar to some readers. But even with the stories I thought I knew, there, there were details that I, you know, that were, were fresh to me and, and I had not really considered before. And I keep thinking here in particular about the the, the story of, of Persephone and Demeter, which is one that I knew in in, in, in general outline. I, I may have even have mentioned it uh, to, to people in the past when we were talking about things like pomegranate seeds. But but you you flesh it out in a way that really exposes new dimensions of it that I hadn't really considered before. That's been one of my favorite stories for my entire life. And it changes in why it's important to me as I go through life. When I was young, I really saw it from the point of view of Persephone. Here's this this young woman who is snatched away. I, well, it's rape. There's really no way of getting around that. And so when I was young, I was fascinated by what she must have felt and what she went through. Then when I had children um, and would read the story after that, not read it to the children, but when I was studying it myself, I really felt for Demeter because as a mother, I newly understood what it must have been like to be a mother who lost her children. So for these reasons and for others, it's a myth that has utterly fascinated me forever. Uh, so I'm very glad that you like it too, Mark. <laughs> Thanks. I, it, it, that was actually something else that I was struck by is the way you update it. You you really take a lot of the shine off or, or a lot of the, the diplomacy out of it. You point out that what's going on in a lot of these stories is rape, sexual assault, uh, you know, very abusive behavior that it's that maybe they kind of, you know, rationalized away or, or, or dismissed as, as being gods being gods but it, it really does underscore the the brutality of a, a lot of these uh, supernatural figures yeah it is brutal uh i have a colleague who has a teenage daughter and they were studying the demeter and persephone myth in school and the teacher was using euphemisms for what happened and my colleague's daughter said well no this is rape and my colleague's daughter got into a little bit of trouble for saying that, but she was jolly well right. And it, I find it very distressing that there are places where the rapes of Greek myths still are not called rapes. Mm -hmm. I was thinking also, uh, as another example, what happens with uh, Zeus and his first wife, Metis. And it, it, I mean, I, Metis was a figure about whom I was admittedly unfamiliar but what you you know basically he takes his first wife he effectively confines her and he goes off and he starts marrying other women and and and, and this is something that you do in the book that, that i thought was really well done we, we circle back to some of these figures that and that that we, we you introduce them in, in terms of how you structure them at one point and then that part of the tale is done but then we see them again later on and that we it helps to appreciate you know the circumstances in which they're in how they got into those circumstances and and the and the beings that are responsible for it 
Well, what I was thinking of when I did that was in part the way that the myths would have really been told in antiquity. If you went to a festival where a, a poet was reciting one of these myths, you wouldn't necessarily have heard uh, the early part of the myth the day before you heard the later part of the myth. There might be a whole month in between or more than a month, and you might have heard other myths in between that. So what you're talking about as far as circling back and finding out what has happened to a figure is really the way that people would have experienced these myths in antiquity. and. I did it with the Machis myth in particular because I did want to accentuate what, what you yourself have picked up on, so I'm, I'm glad that you did. Namely, that once Zeus confines Matis by swallowing her because he knows that she's going to otherwise bear children that will overthrow him, the king of the gods, after Zeus has swallowed her, he really does kind of forget her until the terrible day comes when he has this roaring headache and eventually has to ask Prometheus, one of his advisors, to chop his head open because he figures there's something very bad in his head that is trying to get out. And at that point, the Meta story comes to completion because their daughter, who all this time has been gestating inside Matus, who's inside Zeus, comes popping out of Zeus's head. And that's Athena. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, that was a story that was written. And of course, then, of course, Matus is... Uh, and you uh, highlight, you, you point this out in your book, then she's conveniently forgotten again. And I especially liked it, uh, how, how telling it was that Zeus then basically convinces himself that Athena was entirely his own doing and that, you know, that, that, you know, there was no Matus and, and there's no way that Matus could have possibly been responsible that, that Athena is bored fresh out of his head. There's something so, <laughs> I, I think, very, very uh, human about that. Yes, he becomes the first man to give birth. <laughs> and i'm sure he'd mansplain it for for all the gods too <laughs> absolutely now now you do feature the the gods made these stories but but ultimately the majority of them are focused around the humans and I, this this really becomes apparent in the second section which is about the gods and mortals and i was wondering if you perhaps uh talk a bit about a couple of the stories there i mean you, you start with prometheus who is one of my favorite figures in antiquity because he's one who you know I, i've always been you know i always like the fact that he took pity upon humanity and he tries to provide you know a literal enlightenment of of, of their situation and 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 then he ends up paying this terrible price for it that that you know you you provide a lot of the details that we tend to gloss over when we just talk about you know the fate that he eventually experienced prometheus is a really good example um of something that i try to bring through uh throughout the book or rather i should say prometheus is an exception to a rule that i try to bring out Namely, that by and large, the gods not only don't care about mortals, but they treat them very cruelly. And Prometheus is the champion who's trying to prevent that from happening. And Prometheus, of course, ends up suffering very, very badly for this. He's chained to a cliff out in the Caucasus Mountains, which, if you're in central Greece, is very, very far away. And his liver is eaten out every day by an eagle, et cetera, et cetera. So Prometheus suffers a great deal for being our champion. But if he had not intervened, uh, the way that the gods treat mortals would have been even crueler than it was. And it's interesting, when I started writing this book, I certainly knew that there were many tales in which gods treat mortals cruelly. But as I began to organize uh, the myths in um, you know, what particular order I wanted to tell them and think about how I wanted to tell them, 
it occurred to me that these myths that I had been reading literally my entire life since I was able to read were much more um, insistent on the huge distance between gods and mortals than I had ever before realized. That is the collective message, I think, of Greek myths, that there are these two parties and the power differential between them is absolutely immense. Is there a particular story or tale of the, the gods and, and, and the interaction between gods and morals that, that you find particularly uh, in, in tr- interesting or, or, or particularly uh, illustrative of that relationship that you described? Uh, there's so many, but I'll talk a little bit <laughs> about one that is a particular favorite of mine, and that is the story of Arachne and Athena. And it's probably familiar to most people that Arachne foolishly boasts that she is a better spinner and weaver than Athena. And Athena, who has been listening to this while in disguise, then challenges Arachne to a weaving contest, when in fact it turns out that Arachne has produced the better tapestry. Athena, in this kind of petulant fury, like you would expect from a a toddler, um, rips Arachne's beautiful tapestry to shreds, starts beating Arachne about the face with a a shuttle, um, the wooden shuttle that she has been using to weave. And in shame, and it's not clear whether Arachne is ashamed of having been arrogant in the first place or whether Arachne is ashamed of what Athena is now doing to her. But either way, Arachne hangs herself. And then we get to the real crux of the story for me. Athena decides she's not going to let Arachne die. And is this because she pities Arachne and is sorry for what she did? Or is this because she's about to inflict a further damage on Arachne? It's it's not clear in the ancient version which it is. Athena touches Arachne with a potion that the goddess Hecate has created, and Arachne turns into a spider. The reason that this really bothers me is that I love to knit. I love to sew. I love to work with textiles. It's it's my my passion. Um, well, my second passion after myths. And a spider weaves and spins, but a spider is weaving and spinning the same color over and over, the same kind of textile over and over. It's sort of the most horrible thing that someone who loves textiles can imagine being condemned to do. It's almost like a warning not to get too good at the spinning and weaving, unless the gods punish you for it in a way. Yes. Which is not exactly a great moral. <laughs> no, but if you grow up reading Greek myths, as I did, that really sticks in your mind. I think it has an effect on you. It's not just me. I've talked to other classicists who also grew up reading myths, and we are always just a little bit looking over our shoulders. Um, we better not be too good at what we're doing. <laughs> So, and that's one of the, I think, reasons why I think I preferred the section on the heroes, because while the gods are definitely there, we're seeing the, those examples of humans sort of standing up and, 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 and thumbing their noses at the challenges or standing up and, and, and rising to the challenges. And, and for me, I mean, my, my particular favorite in, in that respect was, was, was Theseus, but you, you describe a, a wide range of, of heroes in, in, in that section. Yeah. And of course, there's even more out there than I could describe, but I tried to hit the big ones for sure. Um, So Perseus, Bellerophon, Cadmus, Heracles, 
uh, Theseus, your favorite, Jason, Orpheus, who's my favorite, Oedipus, and then finally, we have one chapter on the single female figure whom we can usually call a hero, and that is Atalanta. Uh, so tell me a story about Orpheus that illustrates why he's your favorite. He's my favorite because he's a storyteller. His great talent that the gods have given him is the ability to be able to sing and play the lyre beautifully. And what goes along with that automatically in antiquity is the ability to tell stories, because this is how myths were publicly transmitted. Of course, parents told myths to their children and stuff like that. But at festivals in honor of the gods, there would be uh, poet singers who would perform, and what they always performed was myths. So Orpheus, because he has been given this gift of being an extraordinary musician, is also an extraordinary storyteller. Um, he can tell the myths of the heroes himself. He can tell you all the stories of the gods. So I think I feel an affinity to him because I try to be a storyteller myself. I, it's interesting how you, you point to that that connection because, I mean, I think that's how I, I feel about uh why, why Theseus is one that I, I relate to. Not that I'm anywhere near as heroic as Theseus, but I, I, I find that there's something I can relate to in terms of the journey that he undertakes to Athens, where along the way he uh, you know, faces this challenge and this challenge. He's told before he goes uh, out there that you know you don't want to take the overland route to Athens because it is so fraught with with you know the peril. And he's like, well, I have to, because, you know, that that's, I need to demonstrate myself. And I, I find this, this, that that's such a great metaphor that I can relate to it so, so easily, you know, even if I'm not necessarily slaying people left and right along the way, I am nonetheless, you know, appreciating that, that what that represents and, and, and what the lesson that has to offer. And I think it's interesting that one reason Theseus chooses to do that is because he greatly admires Heracles. Chronologically speaking, Theseus is about the same time as Heracles. I mean, if myth has chronology, Theseus is a little bit younger than Heracles. Heracles is still alive. The two of them do eventually meet. So Theseus is in just awe of what Heracles has been able to do, in particular, the fact that Heracles has um, cleared Greece of a lot of the monsters that existed and were threatening human welfare. So it's not just that Theseus sets out to take the more difficult route. It's that he's doing it because there's someone he admires and is aspiring to be like. Mm -hmm. Now, we one of the ways you structure the book I thought was interesting was how you begin with the gods. And then while the gods are present throughout the book, the, the, that focus shifts. And, and we've already, I've already you know, mentioned the, the part about the, how you move to the heroes, but then you move to an event that's one of those the events that even if nobody's, uh, even if people have not read uh, about, you know, the works of Homer or have uh, seen even the movies they're familiar with, and that's the Trojan War. And you have a section in which you relate the myths associated with that war. Why the, the, did you have that focus on the Trojan War? And, and, and what ways does it offer us something a little bit different than, say, the uh, stories of, of just the gods or the gods and the heroes? If people have seen uh, Wolfgang Peterson's movie, Troy, and then read my book, they may be surprised to find out just how much the gods are present in the war. The gods are constantly meddling in the war. And 
I really tried to bring that out because we do usually think of the Trojan War as being, well, this is Achilles, the great hero who is um, battling Hector, the other great hero, the Greeks versus the Trojans. And of course, we know about Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek army and all of that. So I'm not saying that it's not a story about how these men on either side are struggling to um, come out the victors. But it is sort of the, because it's, it's again, if you talk about mythic chronology, it's, it's late in time. It's the last great hurrah of the heroes. After the Trojan War is over, the age of heroes is considered to be at an end. And yet the gods are still in there trying to manipulate the situation, trying to make sure that their favorite human, or um, in some cases, uh, a, a human son of theirs, is going to prevail. So it's like the gods make everything about them. Even the Trojan War is about them. I was thinking, you know, for those who are familiar with the story, you know, it, it starts in effect with the gods and their egos and, and, and how they effectively are trying to manipulate a contest. And in doing so, they create the circumstances for the war. And, and I mean, if you, you know, it's, it's there in the legends, but you're right. We, we tend to sometimes get factored out that that interaction and in, 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 uh, and, and the role that they play that if you you, know, you read your stories, they're, they're very much present from, you know, day one to to the very end. Yeah. And one story that people usually don't know, which I tell in the first. Um, no, I guess it's the second chapter of my section on the Trojan War is that this whole thing was orchestrated by Zeus. Uh, Earth, the goddess Earth, who is, of course, also the, the Earth that we stand on. She starts to groan in pain and she says, there's, there's way too many humans on my surface. I can't take this anymore. You're going to have to do something about it, Zeus. So Zeus first orchestrates the two Theban wars and the Theban wars kill a lot of people. And Earth says, ah, that's better. But pretty soon Earth is once again saying, oh, there's too many people. You need to do something more extreme. So Zeus plans with the help of Themis, a goddess who is very wise, Zeus plans a series of actions that will eventually um, cause the Trojan War to occur. One is that he sires upon Leda, a mortal woman, this incredibly beautiful daughter, Helen. And of course, Helen is central to the Trojan War. The other is that he causes the goddess Thetis to marry Peleus, and their child is Achilles. And Achilles is also going to be central to the Trojan War. So the whole thing has been carefully planned by Zeus from the start. And that was an aspect of the story. It was none of those aspects of the story I hadn't appreciated, which was the degree to which that Zeus, Zeus was some sort of ancient Greek Malthusian who was engaging in a form of population yeah. control, which is incredibly horrifying and, and kind of gets to that notion of how, you know, the gods are these capricious beings who are constantly inflicting, uh, you know, horrors on us for, for their own, you know, purposes. Yep. That's a very good way of summing it up. <laughs> and, and of course, the Trojan War also looms over your final section in which you uh, recount the stories of all of these survivors of the war going back home. And, and some of these are, are very famous, uh, you know, uh, figures like the, the, you know, Odysseus and the Odyssey, of course, is the one with which everyone's going to be familiar. But you also feature someone who I, I often didn't, I, I did not ever really think about it until I read the story, which was the story of Agamemnon. Yeah. And as much as I love the Odyssey, 
it's the story of Agamemnon that really continues to um, pull at me. Uh, It's done so throughout my career. I think because this is, again, a case of the gods or fate orchestrating so many things in advance. Just to talk about the, the last part of the story, although it has its roots much deeper in Agamemnon's ancestral family, um, the gods compel Agamemnon to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia if he wants winds that will carry the Greek fleet to Troy. Understandably, his wife Clytemnestra is very angry at the fact that Agamemnon has sacrificed Iphigenia. So while he's at war, she takes a lover and she prepares, she and the lover prepare for his return in the sense that they prepare to murder him. So as soon as Agamemnon's home, he's murdered. That then puts his son Orestes into this horrible dilemma that he's obligated to avenge his father's death. But the only way that he can do that is by killing his mother, which he does. And then Clytemnestra's ghost sends these horrible underworld um, Avengers, the Arinoes, after Orestes. So it's just this story that goes on and on and on like a soap opera, each character falling into misfortune because of things that the characters before them have done. And that gets to a final aspect of the book that I really enjoyed, which is how, I mean, reading them, reading these various tales, I just find so much in there that is relatable. I find the metaphors fascinating. And yet you tell the story and you let the story stand for itself and leave it to the reader. And I, re- I really appreciate the, the the respect you showed to the reader in terms of letting them draw out meanings that they might find in it, especially since that gives, you know, gave me a chance to sometimes revisit a couple of them and draw out different meanings than I had during my previous uh, reading of the story. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm very glad that you like that. That was something I really wanted to do, especially after a career spent teaching the myths. Uh, It's important, of course, to help students understand what something in a myth means or how the myth was used. But after years and years of doing that, I wanted to return to thinking of them as stories. And as you said, to letting other people decide what's in that story for them. It may not be at all the kind of thing that's in the story for me. So I'm trusting that if I've told the stories well, they will stand on their own and you, the readers, will, will find valuable things in them. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Ah, I'm working on a book. I'm in the very early stages. I'm interested in why, um, since about the middle of the 19th century, we have been so fascinated by supernatural horror fiction. Uh, I am trying to understand why that appeals to people so much. That does sound like it's going to be a fascinating book, and I hope that when it's published, we can have you uh, back on a podcast to talk about it. I'd love to, Mark. This has really been fun. Well, thank you very much. Sarah, I hope you have a wonderful day, and best of luck with your book, which I hope everyone has a ch- takes the time to read. Thank you, Mark.